Hello and welcome to the Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study Podcast. Today we're going to be continuing on in our uh, study through chapter 3 in Mark. Um, we will be covering verses 20 through 35 today and finishing out that, for, uh, that third chapter. So with that, let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for another day. Thank you for another opportunity to share your word. Father, I pray that as we uh, continue on through this study, Lord, that everybody that's listening, everybody that's downloading these podcasts, Lord, both here and around the world, Father, I pray that this would be a blessing to each and every one of them, Lord, that we would learn, that we would grow, that we would have understanding in, uh, in what's going on uh, in the Word, Lord, Father, that we might grow and, and be more like you. Father, I lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> okay, so... As we all know, the Christian life is not easy, especially for, uh, really, it doesn't matter any type of age or, or maturity of believers. You know, we often struggle to find a place in our families we are, uh, uh, that are, you know, really covered with unbelievers. We clash with non-believers on a regular basis, and it can make life very difficult as we try and navigate the world that we are living in. You know, the enemy throws many lures at us in order to pull us out of the kingdom and back into the world. He will try to entice the flesh, the pride, and the ego of believers. He will offer money, notoriety, short-term happiness, and even shame as a result of rejecting his offers. Now, truth be told, times have changed drastically. In the last two decades, uh, they've uh, changed rapidly. I would say in the last five years, they've accelerated even more. Now, what was unacceptable behavior in public 20 years ago is now being packaged and sold as a preferred way of living today. Immorality is no longer considered immoral. Anyone in the world, uh, it, by anyone in the world anymore, it seems, uh, it's shrouded in the veil of acceptance and tolerance. If you do not accept and if you do not tolerate and accommodate, you're labeled a bigot, a fundamentalist, backward, and so on. You know, God though, never called us to be tolerant. He never called us to be accepting. He never called us to be accommodating to evil. We are to be in opposition to it. We are to be loving, but unyielding in our beliefs. We are to witness and pray for people, but never to congratulate the evil that they perform. The term alternative lifestyle is not in our means of practice. We deal with those that choose to live in depravity. We respect the person, but we despise the sin. We live in a world where people have begun to mutilate themselves. They poison themselves with chemicals and hormones. They live lives of confusion based on, uh, based in illusion. But still, we witness to them. We give the message of the gospel, despite their not liking us, despite the hatred that is shown to the believer. We stand firm in God's love and love them. They are redeemable souls, and God wants them the same as he wanted you and me. You know, we stand, though, in opposition, uh, on opposite sides of the aisle, on opposite sides of, of morality, and opposite sides of eternity with this world. I don't know if it's jealousy, if it's hatred, or if it's ignorance that drives the world to ridicule and persecute Christians. But it happens regularly. Although not always physically, we are persecuted in words and in deeds. The morality that we affirm is seen as an, uh, as an outdated system. We have legislation on a reg regular basis being presented in all houses of government that seeks to have biblical morality labeled as hate speech. But still, we press on because the Lord has called us to persevere. 
And so our main topic for today is opposing opposition because we do come against opposition all the time, whether it be from our friends, from our family, from the religious uh, leaders of the world. And when I say that, I mean everybody because everybody believes in something. And, and, and also from those closest to us, those within our own family. So we'll take a look at that. You know, the unbelieving world hates us. The religious world looks down on us, but the light of God shines, shines within us. No matter what happens or where we are, when we are among those that do not understand the grace and mercy that has been given to us, we will always be thought of uh, as off. You know, Jesus faced the same things that, uh, that we faced. He was misunderstood by the religious leaders, by the onlooking crowds, and even by his own family. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went off and lay hold of him. For they said, He is out of his mind. You know, the world believes believers are out of their minds. Here we have Jesus coming down off the mountain and into a house in Galilee. He had just called the twelve, and now they're in a house, crammed in by crowds that were flocking to see him. As it usually goes, the people had needs and were, seeking, uh, were, were seeking Jesus to, uh, to deal with those needs. You know, he was so busy, as well as those around him, that they were unable to eat. His own people, meaning his earthly family, heard, heard about what was happening around him and came to check on him. You know, if you can imagine, in that day, Galilee was 30 miles away from Nazareth. They traveled pretty far to get to Jesus, and here he was, zealously ministering to people. They believed him to be a fanatic. They had concern. Now, I often wonder if they were more worried about him or about their own reputations at this point. You know, was Jesus becoming that weird uncle or brother that doesn't get invited to birthday parties at this point? Or were they concerned about his safety? You know, it's hard to know, uh, judging by the way people are, right? J.R. Miller writes this, They could account for his unconquerable zeal only by concluding that he was insane. We hear much the same of the same kind of talk in modern days. When some, uh, when some devoted believer of Christ utterly forgets self in love for his master, people say he must be insane. They think every man is crazy where religion kindles any sort of unusual fervor or who grows more earnest in, than the average Christian in work for the master. That is a good sort of insanity. It is a sad pity that it is so rare. If there were more of it, there would not be so many unsaved souls dying under the very shadow of our churches. It would not be so hard to get missionaries and money to send the gospel to the dark continents. There would not be so many empty pews in our churches, so many long pauses in our prayer meetings, so few to teach in our Sunday schools. It would be a glorious thing if all Christians were beside themselves as the Master was, or as Paul was. It is far worse insanity, which in this world never gives a thought to any other, uh, any other, to any other world, which moving continually among lost men never pities them, nor thinks of their lost condition, nor puts forth any effort to save them. It is easier to keep a cool head and a colder heart, and to give ourselves no concern about perishing souls. But we are, are our brother's keepers, and no malfeasance in duty can be worse than that 
in which pays no heed to their eternal salvation. You know, that's kind of heavy. When we talk about faith being an action and not just words, we are talking about denying ourselves in order to save other, uh, to serve others. You know, we must remember that Mark is the action gospel, the gospel that is represented by the face of the ox, the servant. Jesus was serving those people around him nonstop, no matter what the cost to himself, and people thought he was crazy for it. You know, in a sense, I think when we enter into true Christian ministry, when we enter into service to God, we in turn face that same type, same type of ridicule. Am I right? You know, I know in my own life, when I spend my entire Tuesday in my office putting together studies instead of going out on my day off and going to the mall or to movies or whatever, it's seen differently. I know for some of us leaving family functions early to go serve in our churches, taking our time to go to school or to go to study, uh, to go to studies or to go to classes in the evenings instead of sitting at home watching TV and, and, and seeing the world, uh, it's seen differently by the world. You know, when I talk to people and I tell them that I lead a Bible study and that I have a podcast that comes out of that Bible study, people quickly lose interest in anything you really have to say. You know, in fact, how do you go from being an extrovert in this world to being an introvert? You know, the answer to that is follow the Lord. Because the more you follow the Lord, the more time you invest in eternity, the more time you invest in the Word and put the changes in and allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, the more you're going to be by yourself. You're going to be off. You're going to be alone. And people don't want to associate with you. And, and it's not that they don't like you anymore. Maybe some of them don't like you. But you act different, differently, right? I have several friends out there that I used to go and hang out with every Friday, you know, and, you know, they would call me up and we'd go to Matanzas or we'd go shopping or we'd go do all this different stuff. But now they don't call anymore. Sure, they'll text you and they'll send you pictures or whatever. Or, you you know, on social media, you'll see the pictures of the party and all the people that were there that you weren't invited to, that you're not invited to anymore. But that's okay. You know, we are a peculiar people. We're supposed to be living differently. We're supposed to be living separately. Of course, it would be a great opportunity to go and witness to people and share the gospel. But, you know, after you've done it so many times, you know, people just stop inviting you because they reject it, because they've fallen into religion. And you know what? All we can really do is pray for those people. Um... You know, the more sold out we are for Christ, the more the world is going to see us differently. But that's okay. Like I said, we are a peculiar people. Remember that. We were bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. We are not to be like the world. We are to be holy. We are to be separate. We are the called out ones. Our job is not to blend in. Our, our job is to call others out. We cannot do that unless we are different. And sometimes different is seen as insanity. Until that insanity is setting your life straight, the world is going to be off track. In verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So the scribes had come down from Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what direction you go in when you come down from Jerusalem. You can go east, west, north, or south. Jerusalem sits on top of a hill. So these guys came down from the hill into Galilee, and here they are accusing Jesus of doing work by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, right? Now, opposition to Christ comes from a religious fundamentalist also. 
Now here, we shift from the family of Jesus, giving opposition to his zeal and service, to those in need, uh, to those in need back to the religious leaders who were blinded by their jealousy for Jesus and the crowds that he was attracting. Now, to get the full context of this verse, though, we need to look at what actually happened that led to the accusation being made toward Jesus. And we find that in Matthew. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So here we see one event that is met with two different reactions. We see the multitudes, or the common people, if you will, the publicans and the sinners, sitting back and looking at Jesus and the works that he is doing and wondering if he really is the son of David and the Messiah. You know, they were seeing things as lay people that the religious leaders those that had memorized scripture word for word should have been seeing. But on the other hand, we have the religious leaders, the scribes. Now, the scribes, if you recall, were lawyers and interpreters of the law. They believed in following the law to its most minute aspects. We also have the Pharisees described in Matthew's account. These were also very stringent people when it came to following the law and the letter of the law. Now, what they should have been realizing as they witnessed the work that Jesus was doing, that he was the Messiah, that this was God in the flesh, the son of David, that was promised for hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment, and here he was standing right in front of them. Instead, they accused him of being in league with Beelzebub, which is a name for the devil and means master of the house. Now, Jesus' response to these guys was as follows. In Mark chapter 3, verse 23, he says, so he, so he called them to himself and said to, the, to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. So division leads to destruction. Now, a parable is described in several different ways. Some people will call it an earthly story with a heavenly tie. But basically what it is, it is a story that leads the listener to have to make a decision. Okay, the Pharisees and the scribes are being put on the spot right now by Jesus. They have to make a, Jesus, uh, make a decision. Now, Jesus spoke in parables. And as we see him now question the logic of the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, he asked them, how can Satan cast out Satan? The fact of the matter is that Jesus had just healed or exercised the demon from a, a, a demon possessed man. Now, we all know that Satan and God are in a battle of sorts for souls, right? There is a contention between the two. We know that God is greater than Satan. We know that the end result of choosing God over Satan will always be greater. But there is still that eternal battle going on for souls. And that battle lays within us. It's not between God and Satan. If God wanted every soul saved, he would save them. But he leaves that choice to us. That's called free will. Right? It, it, it's where our heart leads us. If a, heart's, uh, if a man's heart leads him to the Lord, well then he's chosen the Lord. And the battle is won there. Right? But 
if he chooses otherwise, well, that's that person's choice. And God lovingly honors that choice. You know, nobody is forced to be saved. Now, if we think about it, a saved person is somebody that is turned to God through uh, through his son, Jesus Christ, and, have, and, and has accepted an eternity with the Lord. But we also know that that person is kept when they do that. That when that person comes to the Lord, that person is held onto, clung to, or protected, guarded, locked up in the love of the Lord. He will not let that person go. Well, the same goes for Satan. You know, we've all witnessed to people, we've all given the gospel to people, whether they are uh, are irreligious people, or religious people, or people in cults. You name it, we've witnessed to them, right? But how hard is it sometimes to convince somebody that Jesus is the way, and that religion and works, and just being a good person, and doing one good deed every single day, isn't the answer? Satan has laid so many lies on the world as a means of trying to make them feel good, and to make... Uh, and that makes it difficult for believers to come through and witness and convince men. This is why we must be on top of our game when it comes to apologetics, when it comes to understanding our faith, when it comes to our conduct, our beliefs, our faith, and how we live our lives. What people see is, is what people believe. Now, the fact of the matter is Satan does not want to let people go. He knows his end. He's very well versed in scripture. He knows that he is headed for destruction and misery loves company. He's going to take as many people as he can on the way with him, right? So the question that Jesus asked these guys is why would Satan cast himself out? Why would he let go of somebody that he has in his possession? He, he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. I think at this point, we've all seen the illustration made of the, of the strength in numbers lesson, right? Now, if I were to go outside and grab one stick or twig, I could easily break it. But if I were to grab a handful of sticks or twigs, say 10 or 15, it's very hard to break uh, that amount of, uh, of sticks if they're all bundled together, right? You have strength there. Well, if I was to take five and five out of 10 and put them in each hand, well, then I could break those. It would be a little bit harder, but it would you know, it wouldn't be uh, impossible like the 10, right? We have strength in numbers. We have strength in unity. Um, you know, the more unified we are, the stronger we are together. It's the same with people as with the sticks. Now, we know that Satan has many forms of evil. We know that he has millions upon millions of lies out there that are leading people to hell. We know that he's got his hands on everybody uh, that does not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter if they're the most moral people in the world. It doesn't matter if they're the nicest people in the world. They're in this possession, in his possession because they are separated from the Lord. And they are still subject to the God of this world. And when I say God, I mean that with the little g. You know, Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, although the beliefs of these people may vary from place to place, the end result is still unified in their eternal destination. No matter how good a person is or how evil a person is, separation from God leads to the same unified result. If you take a nation such as the one that we live in today, we are very divided. We are very opinionated on certain topics, ranging from political to moral views, to social views, that, uh, and, and what have you. But look what happens every time we see some sort of tragedy take place. 
Look what happened on 9-11, how unified our country got, and how we were able to stand up to those that came against us. Same thing with Pearl Harbor. You know, this country unified and went after those that attacked us because we all stand for liberty. We all stand for justice and freedom. A nation that does not believe in itself will fall if you are unable to unify under something or, or some principle the nation will topple. The same applies for the kingdom of Satan. Satan will not do anything as a means of making God look good. Satan wants to draw people to himself. He wants to attract people to, uh, to his way of thinking. He wants people to be with him and not with God. And so he will unify under any false pretense with the same principle and the same end result. It, right? So Satan will not stand against Satan. Satan is completely in league with himself in order to pull as many souls away from heaven as he possibly can. He would not divide himself. He will not give an inch. And he will not give an inch. Nobody wants to lose a battle. The war is always a, a won by the more decisive army. And even though Satan is no match in power when it comes to the battle between him and God, we, uh, you know, we can't even call it a battle. The fight's already over, right? We know that. He's already lost. He will not give an inch or stand against himself. But what we do see is this, and the truth is revealed in the next verse. In verse 27, it says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and, when he will plunder, and then he will plunder his house. So God overcomes Satan. Jesus tells him this essentially. Satan does not defeat himself. He would not defeat himself. But what happens is somebody greater than Satan comes in and ties the strong man up, which would be Satan, and takes his goods. What he is essentially saying is that God is greater than Satan. If Satan has possession over a, a person's soul or over a man, he's not going to let it go. But what happened is God went in and completely overpowered Satan and took what was his. You know, it's not that that, that person uh, was Satan's to begin with. You know, God just went in and reclaimed him. It was his own, just as he did with all of us when he took us from the clutch, uh, the clutches of the wide, fast-flowing highway and that led to hell and brought us back to the narrow path in the direction of the light. You know, think about it as somebody coming in and robbing your power tools out of your shed right? And that person leaves a big trail of cords uh, through the dirt all the way to their house, like three houses over. And you see all this stuff and you're like, dude, this guy went, he, you know, he just took my skill saw. That was a worm drive. That's a good one. I'm, I'm going to go get that back. And so what do you do? You follow those trails back. We should call the authorities, but you see that it leads to the guy's front door. You kick in the front door, you go in, he tries to confront you. You, you know, you take him down, make a citizen's arrest and there's your skill saw back there on the table. What do you do? You bind that dude up, you take what's yours, and you reclaim it. That's essentially what Jesus did with this guy, right? Satan is no match for the power of God. If we allow God to be the guiding light and the direction that we make in our lives, there is no sin, there is no temptation, there is no trial, there is no nothing that can overcome the power of God if we look to God above all else. And those that that do that will uh, not face the, the, a similar fate as Satan will face. In verse 28, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, 
and whatever blasphemes, uh, blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So op opposition and rejection leads to condemnation. Here we come to the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have two different eras to consider at this point. If we think back to the time of Jesus when he walked on earth, people were witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit in first person. You know, they were looking out and seeing the Son of God as he taught, as he lived, as he performed miracles, as he spoke. It was happening in real time, in, right in front of them. But what happened was the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious people re were rejecting him. Again, it goes back to their jealousy. It goes back to their envy. It goes back to their want and need for power above others. Now think back two years in our own country when emergency powers were granted to the government in order uh, for us to battle a virus that had been unleashed on the earth. You know, those emergency powers extended to state and local governments, and they were brought down uh, by the federal government. But look how long it took for those powers to be relinquished. In some cases, in the federal government, we're still seeing these powers being held onto. It's a way of lording over people, and they are reluctant to get over it. The same thing happened with the Pharisees and the scribes. They had power over the people. People believed that they were the mediator between God and men, but when they, uh, the actual mediator came in Jesus Christ, they did not want to let it go. You know, they had a lordship over the people where Jesus was giving them freedom. He was giving them uh, uh, freedom and grace. He was giving them mercy. These were all foreign concepts when it, come, it came to the scribes and to the Pharisees who were very strict. Now, consider our own time. We have the scriptures. We have historical proof. But most importantly, we have the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all know that we are sinners. We all have guilt, whether we believe in Jesus Christ or we do not believe in Jesus Christ. That guilt is always laying with us. I believe that is the Holy Spirit constantly working on us in our lives. Now, how can we blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit consists of this. If we look at the Bible and we break it down page for page, there is not one page where Jesus does not appear as the message. You know, it, the message of Christ begins in Genesis, where we, where we break down the old Hebrew. It basically says, uh, God sends a son, right there in the first verse. And it ends with the redemptive story of Jesus Christ assuming the throne for eternity. In between, we see pictures of the Lord. We see types of Christ. We see prophecy. We see stories. We see foreshadowing. We see parallels. We see all these different things that lead to Jesus Christ. We can look back and see historically the facts that surrounded Jesus' life. We find an empty tomb. We find references made in secular history. We find artifacts. We find all this different stuff that point us to the truth of Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever, looking at the lives of believers, looking at the convictions of believers, looking at the ways, the mannerisms, and how people are treated, how people treat other people, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit, are present there as well. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit comes down to this, not believing the, uh, what he says when it comes to Jesus Christ. We believe that scripture is God-breathed, that it is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If we reject the message of Christ, then we are rejecting the Holy Spirit, and we are calling him a liar, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit.
You know, the one unforgivable sin is dying without Christ. That is how a person ends in hell. Now think about it. Murder is forgivable. Theft is forgivable. Lust is forgivable. Lying is forgivable. All these different things are forgivable, except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That means that the only way that a person is unforgiven is if they die without Jesus Christ, because they rejected the message given to them by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at verse 30, you see it all summed up as, as to what Jesus was telling them. They said that he had an unclean spirit. They had rejected the Son of God in his very presence, and they were condemned. They opposed him, and their opposition led to destruction. And he told them right to their face. You know, that's something that we should always be willing to do. Also, we've got to be bold when it comes to the truth. We should pull no punches. It may not seem like the nice thing to do, but sometimes telling the truth, even when it hurts, is the most loving thing that we can do for a person. You know, people may not be saved the first time that they hear the gospel. They may not be saved the first time that you witness to them. But if we are persistent, if we put the rock in their shoe, if you will, they're always going to be reminded by that. Uh, by that, And the Holy Spirit is always going to convict them until one day they might come to the Lord. Our duty is to give an answer for what we believe to anybody that asks and to present that to an unbelieving world that greatly needs the Lord. So many people die without the Lord Jesus in their lives, and it doesn't matter how good a person is, that person was, or, or you know, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Hell is full, of good, is full of good people, but good people dying without Christ still go to hell. You know, we need to know the Lord. There are no exceptions, because today is here, but tomorrow is not promised for us. If we die without Christ in our lives, we are subject to punishment, because we have rejected the message that was given to us. We have rejected the Son of God, who came down and died on the cross for us who took our sins upon himself for us, and only asked that we believe in him. And we have rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which bears witness to the events that took place 2,000 years ago, when Jesus took our place in punishment for us. If we reject that, we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and we deserve the punishment that comes towards us. Verse 31 says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So our spiritual duty is greater than our earthly duty. Here we find Jesus again in a crowded room. His mother and his brothers, meaning Mary and her children, have arrived where Jesus is at and are unable to get to him. So they send word from outside of the house to tell Jesus that they are waiting for him. At this point, Jesus looks around the house and says, My mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. Now there are a few things that we can learn from this passage. First of all, Jesus' words were a rebuke to the worship of Mary and uh, Mariolatry. Uh, you know, as we can see, it was better for Mary to do the will of God than for God to do the will of Mary. He cut the ties between his earthly bonds to his earthly mother and his heavenly duty uh, to his heavenly father. 
You know, our spiritual relationships take precedence over natural ones. Jesus was not in submission to Mary. Mary was in submission to Jesus. This is also the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Mary is mentioned. Secondly, it disproves the notion that Mary was a perpetual virgin. There are some churches that say that these were Jesus' cousins. But when the Bible means to say cousin, it says cousins. And when it means to say brothers and sisters, it says brothers and sisters. Jesus was the firstborn, which made him the greatest big brother that ever lived. Followed by myself. I'm just kidding. In second place. But all, all the same, but all the other children that were born were born after him. They were his half-brothers and half-sisters. They were fathered by Joseph. Uh, we know of James. We know of Jude or Judah who wrote epistles. There was also a Simon in there, and he also had sisters. You know, Mary was not a divine figure. She was a person chosen to fulfill a divine purpose. Third, it put Jesus' interests in God above natural ties. You know, there are often times in our lives where our families will challenge our faith. Many people do not understand what it takes to truly follow God. They do not understand the sacrifice that it takes when one decides to put their trust in the Lord and go to the ends of the earth for him. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, or even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We are called to lay down our lives to follow the Lord, no matter who or what may be trying to hold us back. Fourth, it redefines our relationships in this world. We have our blood relationships with our earthly siblings, but we have a spiritual relationship with our Christian brothers and sisters. You know, we think about this as we pray for other believers around the world. We think about this as we pray for others in the church. The group presently uh, listening right now, or that's on the screen on Tuesday nights when, th when these messages are first uh, given out and we study and, and we have a, a back and forth question and answer. These are my brothers and sisters. The people that I go to church with and sit with, I might not even know half their names. But you know what? Those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a, a common bond, and we share a Father in heaven. We share in the adoption by our Lord when, he came, uh, when we came to Him. You know, we are a big family, the family of God, as sons and daughters of God. It, shouldn't, it, 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 it should invoke a closeness for us as a means of caring for one another that go beyond our earthly bonds. Yes, we honor our father and mother on earth. Yes, we love our brothers and sisters and siblings on earth. But we share in another type of love and a bond through the Lord. Now, lastly, it puts an emphasis on us to do the will of the Lord. Again, it is not just saying for us, it, but it is doing. We can say we believe in Jesus Christ. We can say that we believe in biblical truth, in biblical doctrine, in biblical morality, in our salvation, and in all these different things. But unless we are willing to put our actions ahead of our words, they are just words. Period. We do the will of God. Uh, to do the will of God is to do what God has called us to do. To love one another, to care for one another, to follow him, no matter what the cost. We have to ask ourselves, do we meet that standard? Are, you know, am I really a brother to Jesus? Am I really adopted by the Lord? And we see that in our actions, we see that in our conduct, and we see that in our willingness to let the Lord change us, right? You know we face opposition from the world all the time. You don't have to look very far to find it. It's always present, it's always near, and it's always waiting for us. 
The one thing that we do have is purpose, though. Our purpose is to know God and to make Him known. If we are standing in opposition to the world, then we are standing in the will of God. If we are living a peculiar lifestyle, not like a bunch of weirdos out there just doing off-the-wall things, but living a life of biblical morality, living a life of truth, a life of actual justice, living a life of virtue, we can prove that biblical truth is the best way, and people will see that, and people will be attracted to that. You know, we have to do better as a church, though, I think, when it comes to living up to those standards. There are so many churches today that are filled with so-called believers that have completely uh, disavowed the Word of God. They have replaced it with entertainment, with uplifting speeches, with fluff. We need to be those that, that come out of the Bible-believing churches and show that this is still the way, that the new way doesn't work, but the old ways always will. God doesn't change, but He puts it on us to change our lives to fit His. And that change isn't the way, uh, to, to change the ways of God or the will of God, but to change the way we live from the, uh, the way of the world to the way of God. That is true faith by definition. Now, <clears throat> I saw the other day on an Instagram story, somebody that likes to post Bible verses and make Jesus claims, posted a clip of this preacher, and I turn, use that term loosely, talking about not being disappointed uh, about being in your 30s and still living in an apartment and uh, not driving home in a Mercedes, not having a 6,000 square foot house with a swimming pool and a great job and going on vacations and all this other stuff. And then he turned around and said, just wait, God's going to bless you and you're going to have all that. And I was thinking to myself, man, that has to be the most blasphemous thing I've heard in a little while. You know, the most heretic uh, thing that, that I've seen all week. And then secondly, I thought, didn't Jesus tell us to store up our treasures in heaven, not on earth? You know, and I was thinking, man, this guy is standing in opposition to God. This guy is giving a message that is not true. He's not teaching from the word. He's teaching from, uh, you know, the, the, from the standpoint of the world, right? The world wants you to have possessions. The world wants you to be a materialist. God doesn't want that. He wants you to follow him to the ends of the earth. You know, Jesus, what, what did he tell the rich young ruler? You know, you know, foxes and, 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 and stuff have places to go lay their head, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We are vagabonds on this earth. We are sojourners. We are travelers. We're not here for all this stuff. We're here to follow him, to do the, do his will. It's okay for us to have money. It's okay for us to have a good job. You know, how awesome would it be for each one of us to have a million dollars just for a day, just to prove that millionaires could still be believers. But our wants and our needs and our desires should not be uh, for that, uh, uh, for anything other than to have souls saved, to be taken out of the strong man's house, and to put above, uh, and to put God above uh, him, just as Jesus did that demon possessed man. You know, <clears throat> we do have a common common enemy, and that enemy is Satan. But if we do the Lord's work, we find defeat. Uh, we find our purpose in, in that. We make an impact for the kingdom of God. We cannot be of the world, even though we're in the world. We have to be different. We have to be willing to make the sacrifices, to let go of people, to put others' needs above our own. And most of all, we must be willing to follow God at all costs. Father God, Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I just pray that um, 
you know, you would work on us and work in our lives, Lord, as we, uh, you know, take the time to question ourselves, to question our loyalties, to look at you, Lord, Father, to be unified with you in your kingdom, to make that impact for you. Father, I pray that you would go before each and every one of us today, Lord. Father, I thank you and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.